Hello, everybody, and welcome to Voices Through Avalon. I am Sharon Fincher. And I am Katie Smith. And we are joined today by Assistant Prosecutor Natalie Brookins. Welcome, and thank you for coming on with us. Hello, ladies. Thank you for having me. This is a treat because, you know, you see Natalie all the time, you know, with the clients, and she's running around the courts, and Mm -hmm. she's making it happen. And then we have a chance to sit down and, and really talk to Natalie. So thanks yeah, for coming. We're really happy to have you. Yeah. So, so much to ask, but we aren't going to bombard you with a lot of questions. But I know one of the things Katie and I were wondering, and we didn't know, like, how did you get into this work? So I stumbled into this work kind of by accident. I, uh, way back when, it feels like forever ago now, was going to community college and thinking I was going to go into business and, mm-hmm. and work in a business job. So I took some business classes and I took a law enforcement class just for fun. Mm-hmm. Wound up dropping all of the business classes <laughs> and had perfect <laughs> attendance in the law enforcement class for the first mm-hmm. time in my life. Uh, so I thought, okay, I'll be an, a police officer. That's what I'll do. I'll help people. I wanted to help people. And uh, talked to some advisors. They, they had experience in law enforcement work, said I would not like being a police officer, uh, that it wasn't something that they would recommend for me, and then we talked about law school. So it was right from the beginning, I'm going to go to a law school so that I can become an assistant prosecutor and work in Wayne County, in the city of Detroit, to help people. Um, So that's what got me into this profession in the first place. Awesome. Um, So where did you go to law school? I went to Wayne State. So... uh, doing the Detroit thing all the way through, <laughs> did Wayne State, and then uh, came to the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. I actually got in the prosecutor's office mm-hmm. as an intern my first wow. summer. Wow. Okay. So So you just knew what you were going to do all along. Yes. Yep. And I landed in domestic violence when I first got uh, hired in, when I first was licensed, mm-hmm. and did that for a while. And that was uh, really rewarding work. Really hard, mm-hmm. really rewarding work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, um, you know, and, and working with the Saki team, you know, Florence and Danelle and, and Dena. So, you know, that's how I, I got introduced to you, just trying to help out the Saki team and really just learning the ropes of, at the time, Wayne County safe. Um, you know, but you are, you know, I don't want to say one of the favorites, but. <laughs> you want know, to say that, you are. <laughs> every, everybody loves Natalie and, and you're very passionate about, you know, working with the survivors. And I know you've come to. You know, some of the trainings, you know, it's, it's difficult to get people to come sometime, but you always seem so willing and supportive. Mm-hmm. So we definitely want to tell you thank you for that. Um, I don't think that people understand the relationships that our organization has to have with law enforcement and prosecutors. And sometimes people are resistant, but um, it's very refreshing and very encouraging to get, you know, prosecutors and like yourself and law enforcement officers that really want to support us and help and help the clients. What has been your experiences with working with with the survivors, sexual assault survivors, and, and Avalon Healing in particular? The partnership with Avalon Healing, which I still want to call Wayne County Safe. I'm still working on the rebrand <laughs> in my own head. It's okay. Um, some of the detectives actually had taken to calling you guys Safe House when you were Wayne County Safe, and I had to be like, it's not Safe House. That makes it sound like a shelter, which is a, <laughs> that's not what they can do. Um but it's been really great. It's I Since it's a cold case unit, when I first came on board, I was still pretty new to my career, pretty new to working with the county, and I heard some, some things about community advocacy in the past where there had been uh, friction mm-hmm. between agencies. And I just thought, wow, that's ridiculous because we 
why why wouldn't we want all of the help we can get everybody on board all hands on deck there's 11,000 plus people that each of these kits represent we need as much uh, uh, people working in advocacy because that's really what being a prosecutor is is being an advocate um, so it for me the experience has just been great all the way around um, we when we first when I first get to meet a survivor it's in the Avalon office mm -hmm. where the survivor and an advocate myself and a detective are all sitting down and I can only imagine for the survivor how overwhelming that is to be surrounded by these people who represent the system that did them wrong so many years ago um, so the partnership with Avalon and having Avalon there is so essential I've had more than one time where a victim gets in her head back she's right you can see you can see in her eyes she's right back in that room or on that street or wherever it is with that person who did this horrible thing to her. Sometimes she's right back in the hospital with it, thinking mm -hmm. about a detective who was grilling her and basically calling her a liar way back in the day. Mm -hmm. And she breaks down and to be able to say, okay, me as the prosecutor and this person as the detective, we're gonna get up and we're gonna leave the room. We're gonna let you talk to this advocate who's gonna walk you through your emotions, help you get through this and decide if you wanna continue or if you don't. And that's been kind of another huge part of the partnership is sometimes they don't. They don't want to continue. And that's a really good area to have Avalon be involved because once they don't want to continue, my job's sort of done. But what we did to them by bringing it all back up is not done. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be processed. Um, and that decision needs to be respected, which is something that sometimes you get these guys uh, the bad guys who've done this to many, many people and none of them have the strength to go forward. And from the law enforcement perspective, I want so badly to sort of push the victims into going forward. And um, just, I know I can't, but having an advocate there helps me to say, okay, yeah, this is, that's the line. We hit the wall. There's nothing we can do from a law enforcement perspective. This person just needs healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you, um, so... Tell us a little bit more about what exactly the SACI unit is. Tell us like what that is for people that are listening that do not know. Okay, so back in 2009, uh, there was some issues with Detroit property rooms, and the prosecutor and Detroit Police Department got involved together to sort them out. And I don't actually know a lot about the backstory of that, but I know it resulted in prosecutors working with police officers to look into the property rooms. And uh, there, the prosecutor had been unaware that there were 11,000 plus uh, sexual assault kits in storage. And the, it resulted in a media frenzy and a, uh, a fundraising blitz. And Mariska Hegarty from Law & Order SVU got involved. And uh, the, uh, it was decided that every single one of those kits had to be tested, first of all. Like they did a study, they took a Oh, that's some, somebody else that got involved was a research scientist, mm -hmm. Dr. Rebecca Campbell from uh, Michigan State University. She got involved and helped, I think, a lot to determine whether or not there would be a benefit of testing each of these kits. So they sampled 400 kits, I believe, at random and said, okay, are we gonna, what are we going to identify here? And the conclusion was absolutely, we have to test all of these kits. So little by little, kits started getting, well, not little by little, I guess it was a bulk shipment of kits being tested, but little by little, we started getting information that could be uh, followed up on in terms of a law enforcement perspective. 
So then a uh, task force was formed, prosecutors, detectives, court-based advocates, and system-based advocates. And the, one of the first things that was decided was how are we going to approach these mm -hmm. mostly women. Uh, every <laughs> once in a while there's a sexual assault kit that involves a male victim, but I talk in very gendered terms because that's overwhelmingly the, the majority. Um, so they actually went and had a weekend retreat where advocacy, prosecutors, detectives uh, all got together to say how do we approach these women in a way that can be beneficial to pursuing the cases and beneficial to the women. And so it was decided that detectives would go on their own, um, not on their own, but with their partner, with no other uh, community partners, to physically meet these women, knock on their doors and say, hey, we're here to talk to you about something that happened sometimes in 1995, sometimes in 1992, sometimes 2000, years and years ago. And um, that would almost always have a very emotional initial reaction. Mm -hmm. And then they would say, okay, if you want to go forward, here's my card. We're, we will meet with you. We will have an advocate for you. We will have a prosecutor for you. Mm -hmm. That was another thing because typically in the criminal justice system, a detective takes a victim statement. If it's, a, if it's what's called a hot case, something that just happened, the detective will take a victim statement. Then a package will go to the prosecutor. And with a sex crime, the pro and with many crimes, but especially a sex crime, the prosecutor then wants to meet the victim themselves. Mm -hmm. So they have to speak a second time about what happened to them. And it was very intentional in our unit that we did not want that to happen. We wanted it to be one and done. You don't have to keep saying this over and over. Um, so... I don't, does that answer the question about what Saki is? I yeah. think more than answers. <laughs> so, so just some follow-ups with that. I mean, because yeah. because that's interesting, and, and I think Detroit was one of the first places that really spearheaded this. Am I right? Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Yep. It was Detroit that um, was the first one to make big news with it. I think Cleveland came out shortly after that, and mm -hmm. Houston, okay. as other like large cities where this was happening. But then, I mean, I it's it's awful because it stopped being news. Yeah. It, it just became so common. It was happening everywhere, yeah. and it was just not newsworthy anymore. And and working in the field and, and you know, kind of seeing everything unfold firsthand. So all of the kids have been tested. And, Correct. And everybody's like, yes, all of the, tits have, the kids have been tested, but then you said something else about what it does when you go and you knock on someone's door. You know, and that's the part where I don't think people understand, you know, because even from my experiences when I've sat in on some of the interviews – um, you know, they kind of not, not, not forgot about it, but just pushed it to the side. Um, they may have moved on with their lives and, and their families didn't know. They may have children now and the children never knew. And then it's kind of like removing the Band-Aid. And so I feel like that's why it was so important, you know, for the partnership with the advocates, with, with you all of the prosecutors and also the detectives, because just because the kids got tested and you know, X amount of number of serial rapists were, were caught and everything. Congratulations and thank you for that. But then there's the after effects. And I think now we're getting into, okay, what does that look like? Because it doesn't stop. Absolutely. Yeah. So it doesn't stop people. So we have to keep going. You know, um, you know, it was, it was, it was winning a battle. It's not the war because we still have to figure out what that looks like for, the thousands of people that that affected. And then once their families find out, we have to look at what that does to the families and really just try to offer support. I don't think we talk about that part enough either. We just talked about the kids. Well, of course, you know, 11,000 kids in a warehouse, that's a big story. Why weren't they tested? Everybody loves news. 
but attached to those 11,000 kids are people and families and everything else. And so now we're going into that phase of things. I don't really have a lot of information about that. I know our Saki team works hard with that. Mm-hmm. I know you all are still working hard with that as prosecutors. Um, but you did get a lot of people off the streets. Huh. You did. How many, I don't know if you know the exact number, but around about like serial rapists, when I heard the numbers, I was shocked. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> I don't know the number that we have for serial rapists, but I can tell you the number in terms of cases that I have, that I have personally handled with how many kits could come back to one individual person. Mm-hmm. The very first case that I had in the unit, uh, he had 15 wow. kits. And um, I, I, was, I fought with my supervisors a little bit because that counted as one statistic for me, and it's so statistically based. And I was mm-hmm. like, I need to know 15 cases. It's not just because it's one defendant doesn't mean it's not 15 separate incidences. Yeah. Um, but so he had 15 right after that. I had a guy who had nine. Then I had one who had 11. So when we're talking serial rapists, we're not just talking a guy who's done two or three or four. It's, mm-hmm. it's phenomenal how many. Mm-hmm. And I had at least 15 of those myself. Wow. So to extrapolate that over the 11,000. And now, and those are the ones where we identified the people in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Now, now there's serials that don't have an ID connected to them mm. that need to be um, investigated and attempt to find identifications for. Wow. I mean, I remember years back hearing, um, you know, there was a one of the kits was being tested and, and the perpetrator was already in prison for, like, armed robbery and, and all kinds of stuff, but he was getting out soon, and because the kit was tested and, it, you know, went to trial, you know, it kept him in prison. And... It's just crazy to me just to think, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, to be able to look at these with the benefit of hindsight because that armed robbery probably wouldn't have happened had he been prosecuted for the cold case rape Mm -hmm. when it happened. Right. Sometimes there's guys who've gone on to commit murder. Mm -hmm. Wow. They connect to, I think our kids are connected to criminal acts in 48 other states. Wow. So (laughs) uh, when you think about if, if... we could have, if we could go back in time, and of course it's armchair quarterbacking, so it's not fair to do it to the people who were back then, but now with the benefit of, as we move forward, let's start by believing the victims and go from there. And that's something that, that is, I think, the huge takeaway from this. And it's a shame to say, if we start by believing the victims and then we can prevent other crimes, because what happened to them should be enough Mm-hmm. to be worthy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But yes. if it's not enough and there's people that work in law enforcement that are still so old-fashioned in their thinking that, that they need more, well, there is more. <laughs> we can prevent other crimes mm-hmm. from taking place. Mm-hmm. More violent. More violent than that. Which yeah. is hardly, there's hardly anything more yeah. violent than that. Yeah. You know, people get surprised and <clears throat> it's kind of like, you know, people ask, what do you do? And, and, you know, you try to be crafty and and I say sexual assault advocate because then that just leads to so many other, you know, conversations or things that you may not want to talk about in your downtime. You know, let's be clear. Sometimes when we leave work, we really try to leave work at work because it's so heavy sometimes, we do. you know. Um, but so so people get shocked and they'll say, you really have a job in that? <laughs> I know. You know, where people shut down. Yeah. Like they'll ask you and then they'll get really uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's like 
they want to know more about it, but they're too afraid to ask yeah. you because they don't know what you're going to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and there's the, and then they'll say, that happens enough to where you, you have a job? Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, and especially during COVID. I know my son asked me, you know, he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm on call. People are still doing that through the pandemic? Yeah, it, it doesn't stop. And, you know, so then that's when the discussions of power and control and all of those types of things have to happen. You had to go into about, you know, talking about how the isolation mm-hmm. made the numbers rise and the 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 um the clients really had nowhere to go. Nobody wanted to go to the hospitals and things like that. So, you know, it's very taxing. What do you do for self-care? Like, what do you do to decompress after? Because you hear probably more, I'm sure, more intense things than we do. You're in the courtroom. You're listening to the defendant. You're listening to the survivor. And then all of the witness testimonies and things like that, that's heavy, I'm sure. What do you do to to be the happy Natalie that we see all the time? <laughs> um, well, I'm actually, I try to be very intentional about that. I am in therapy once a week where I talk to a therapist of my own, uh, which I think is probably one of the reasons that I love Avalon so much and, and think that it's so important for the survivors to have because... Even healthy people benefit from talking. Yes. Um, so I do that once a week. I do meditation. Mm. I spend time with my daughter. I try really, especially lately, especially with the pandemic, I've been really focused on being in the moment mm-hmm. and just what's happening now is happening now. And it affected uh, my behavior in court on a recent case. It was my first time having to be in court Mm-hmm. for a live thing since COVID. Mm-hmm. And so I did some things wrong because there's new restrictions and ways things are set up that I didn't understand and, and I got corrected. And uh, I feel like the old me years ago would have held that with me all day, which you mm-hmm. can't do, especially in work like this. You can't hold something something silly like that with you all day. So I said, okay, well, it's my first time. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Let it go. Yeah. Uh, which takes so much practice, which as somebody who holds on to something, you would think just saying, okay, just, I just be Elsa, let it go. <laughs> you said you wanted me to sing. I could sing, let it go. <laughs> yeah, Natalie, I totally agree with you. Like, I feel like I'm very similar in that sense and it just eats away at you all day. And all it does is hurt you mm-hmm. by carrying that with you all day. It doesn't hurt anybody else. The person that said it to you forgot about it five seconds after they told you. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I think it does take a lot of practice. Um, you know, I'm definitely not the same person that I was when I started doing the work. You know, I've always been a community person, a grassroots person. But, you know, specifically working with sexual assault survivors, I think that it it, it made me grow. Um, it's taught me patience. Mm-hmm. The way that I see people, I used to be very judgmental, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you stopped? <laughs> That's what the pause was for. Um, yeah, you know, but it, it really has taught me to really see people um, and allow people to tell me their story and not what I think that their story is. So I think that I've learned a lot of patience. Um, you know, you go through Facebook and you see your memories and it's like, God, I, I really, that's, that was me, huh? <laughs> you know, so, so amen for growth. But, you know, our clients also help us a lot too. And, and I think our network is so great. I mean, so many people I can just call on a bad day or, you know, sometimes at the office we'll come and we'll have our early morning powwows and I don't know, they we really aren't talking about much, but it's a lot for us. Mm-hmm. You know, we need it. And it's great to have a supportive staff, but it's also great to have community partners mm-hmm. and, and working with you all and everything too. So, you know, I love what I do. 
I love the connections that we make. I can say that the majority of the people that I work with very closely are very intimate, you know, with the clients and very serious and sincere and really, really care. You are one of the people that I can see the intensity, and I really know that you really, really care. So, you know, thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you do, you know, with us and, and for our clients. Um, and I'm going to take it a step further, really understanding, you know, really understanding when it's like I want to get this guy, but I know she can't take it right now and I'm going to step back, you know, because sometimes they do come back, but it's because you gave them that break that they felt comfortable enough with you to, you know, proceed. So, you know, you play a huge part in that. So thanks so much, Natalie. Yes. And now we are going to do the lightning round. Yes. Oh, no. There's a li- Nobody warned me there was a lightning round. Surprise, Surprise. question round. Um, I'm just going to ask you a few questions. First question is, what is your favorite restaurant? Oh, my gosh. Maro Sushi, since I haven't been oh, able to be there in yes. forever. Really? Oh, my gosh. Okay. I love that place. Our coworker, um, Trinae Ganchar, she took me there, like, a couple months ago, and we just ordered everything. It was so good. <laughs> it was so good. Um, what is your favorite song? Oh, man. My favorite song. Like, what do you like to listen to to, like, get, you know, feel calm, happy, maybe dance a little bit? Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about music the other day because I think music is my favorite way to turn my brain off, just cranking the radio and singing along. Delta Ray's got to be my favorite band. They have a song called Dance in the Graveyards. I have not heard of them before. Oh, they're fantastic. It's Hmm. so good. I'll have to look them up. Me too. We're going to look them up in like five minutes. (laughs) Delta Ray. Okay. Um, This one might be a little trickier. Do you have a favorite quote? I do. I have it up in my office. It says, do what is right, not what is easy. I don't know who said it, but I've got it on a painted block of wood. <laughs> I feel like you literally live that quote. I try. That's why it's in the office. Like, yeah, okay, sometimes because it's right doesn't mean it's easy. That's do def- it anyway. That's definitely a mantra for you. I can, I can see that just based on this interview. Um, last question. If you could change one thing in the world right now, anything, you know, just to make it better, what would be the one thing you would change? Oh, God, no more COVID. <laughs> that, one's, that one's so easy right now. I said that during my interview, too. <laughs> and world peace. <laughs> well, yes, world peace would be nice, too. But yeah. All right. Well, we. I just want to say, um, you know, thank you so much for coming today. It was wonderful to interview you. I, I loved hearing more about, you know, the Saki unit and what you guys are doing out in the community. So thank you so much, Natalie. I appreciate you guys for having me, and I appreciate all the work that, that Avalon does so much. Thank so. you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us, and stay tuned, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.